Hello there, Darklings, and welcome to the sixth episode ever of Once Upon a Terror. I'm your host, Adelina Hill, and thank you for joining my podcast. I have a little exciting announcement to make. My story, Hotel Marin, has officially been produced on the Scare Me to Sleep podcast. I absolutely loved what Shelby did with my story. She really brought my characters to life. I'll attach a link to that story in the show notes so that you can give it a listen. If you haven't already listened to Shelby's podcast, I highly encourage you do. It is what inspired me to become a narrator, and I love all of her episodes she puts out. She is really creative. Now, you might be wondering why don't my stories have many sound effects, and I will tell you this since it's it's still a baby podcast and I'm still learning. I will slowly be adding sound effects to help make the stories on here, you know, more terrifying. So enough of that and on to the show. I have two stories to tell you tonight. I love them both and I'm very excited to share them with you. The first one is called The Sunflower Room by Reddit user Saturdead. September of 2009, I was at a wine-hazed after-party at my friend Micah's place. I ended up sharing a bottle of white with a stranger. We'd been chatting all night, laughing at everything and nothing. We'd settled ourselves on a balcony with a ridiculous pile of blankets, sofa cushions, and pillows, all kinds of cozy. Other people at the party had come and gone, but we'd stayed there for hours. She was from a small town in Minnesota, but had come to West Virginia for her master's degree. She was just going to stay out here in Juniper for a few days to help her friend move. We don't get a lot of visitors out here. Somewhere around the 3 a.m. mark, we finished our bottle. She was half asleep on my shoulder, waking herself every now and then with little hiccups. When, whenever I get sad, like, really sad, I do this thing, she said. Close your eyes. Sure, yeah, I nodded. I imagine this door. A white door. Can you see it? Yeah. Yeah. So I open it, and there's this... This room, but with a dirt floor. Earthy, fresh, with... With rain. You gotta, like, smell it. I try my best. I was enthralled by the smell of her coconut shampoo, but there was something else there. A tinge of soil, rich with morning dew. I smell it, yeah. So, I take what makes me sad, and I put it into a little seed, and then I plant it. I put it away, and later, it it blooms into this beautiful sunflower. So, it's like a big sunflower room. Yeah, but they get this blue shade, she smiled, because they're sad. Are you sad? She smiled and shook her head. 
I stayed awake as long as I could, trying to be a good shoulder for her to sleep on, and by the time I woke up, she was gone. Now, this was many years ago. It was one of those beautiful early adult memories that just stick with you, which you can look back on whenever life doesn't seem worth the trouble. When my studies were too much or I had a bad breakup or a rough day at work, that memory was my happy place, back on that balcony with that gentle weight on my shoulder. Nowadays, I work as a foreman at a local processing plant. Not that glamorous, but it gives me everything I need. You can't underestimate the value of job security in this market. I certainly don't. I've been in a comfortable position for years. I can't complain. I've gotten a bit stuck in a rut, and those days of wine-hazed optimism feel like a bygone age. But then one night, I got a stark reminder. In that twilight hour between sleep and consciousness, I found myself looking up at the ceiling of my bedroom. The image of a white door came to mind. The same door that beautiful stranger had introduced me so many years ago. A simple wooden door with white paint peeling off the edges. A brass knocker that started to turn green. In my mind's eye, the door swung open. Beyond it was a field of overgrown sunflowers, abandoned for years. Weeds and undergrowth thick enough to form a solid barrier. A sour smell emanated from the room, and I could hear the buzzing of flies. As I reached to close the door, a thorn tendril fell off and wrapped itself around my neck, puncturing my skin. As I opened my mouth to scream, a blue sunflower forced its way into my mouth, rough petals pressing against the back of my tongue. And I woke up, coughing. I ran into the bathroom, gagging violently. I had this sour taste in my mouth and a rash around my neck, little inflamed dots like I'd been strangled with poison ivy. I couldn't stop coughing, and my heart was racing. I'd had allergic reactions before, but never something that constricted my breathing. This was a first. Finally, I felt something dislodge from my lungs. I bent over the sink and forced it out of me. For a few agonizing seconds, it traveled up my throat and left me. Dozens of sunflower seeds. Blue. That night messed me up. The next day, I bought a salve for my neck rash, but I'd already scratched it so bad that I had open wounds. It felt like my body was trying to reject my head. I was more tired than usual, and I kept getting these strange bouts of nausea. On top of it all, I don't want to get into graphic detail, but there was blood in places where blood ought not to be. I took a few days off of work and went to see a doctor. They did a few blood tests and concluded that I got an allergic reaction, but they couldn't tell from what. They urged me to change my sheets and try a new non-perfumed deodorant. I also got a prescription for an epinephrine injection in case my throat closed off completely. I spent the rest of the day cleaning, washing, and worrying. And as I went to bed that night, I tried to think about literally anything but that white door. But as soon as my head hit the pillow, there it was. And this time, it opened on its own. They knew I was coming back, and they were ready for me. Tendrils grabbed me, lifting me up into the ceiling, towards the white door with the brass knocker. I tried to hold back, getting cuts across my arms and legs. I could feel blisters building on my skin, turning into hundreds of painful little pearls. I felt my throat closing as I peered inside. There, in the middle of the field of forgotten flowers, I saw a woman, and she turned towards me. I knew my heart was about to stop, a twinkle from the corner of her eye, and the sheen of yellowed teeth from a wide smile pressure building, chest cramping. I woke up in a panic, having forced myself to fall out of bed. I crawled across the floor, only realizing I couldn't breathe seconds later. 
I couldn't feel the tip of my fingers and my chest was ice cold. I counted my heartbeat as I fumbled my way into the bathroom. I reached for my EpiPen, accidentally knocking it down. It rolled across the floor and under the bathtub. I fell flat on my stomach reaching for it. It was all the way in the back. My vision was fading as the bathroom floor felt colder. I flipped on my back and tried to calm down. I had been without air for 65 seconds. I could make it to 90. I wouldn't die before 90. I counted it down, staring at the ceiling. 70. From that angle, I could have sworn there was a white door above. I could see the outline of the brass knocker and the cracks of the peeling paint. I could hear the tendrils crackle on the other side, and I could feel the eyes of the woman on the other side firmly fixed on me. 80. She was right there. She was waiting. 90. Please, God. Suddenly, a trickle of air, like breathing through a straw. I could feel my senses coming back to me. That pressure in my face faded, leaving me flushed and teary-eyed on the bathroom floor. I didn't sleep that night. I couldn't risk it. First thing in the morning, I called the doctor again, but they just reiterated the need to keep my EpiPen close. They booked me in for a blood test and suggested I slept somewhere else for a day or two. It could be an allergic reaction to bed bugs or dust mites. Looking through my contacts list, my thumbs stopped over an old college friend, Micah. It was at his party that I had first met that girl in the first place. I texted him on a whim, and surprisingly, he was still around. He lived in town, and he was eager to meet up for a coffee. I met Micah at a small cafe across the street from Archery Range. He'd gained about 80 pounds from last time I'd seen him, but his youthful spirit was as evident as ever. I held out a hand to greet him, and the guy just wrapped me up in a big hug. We got a couple of bear claws and sat down by one of the back tables. Micah was eager to catch up. He told me all about his family and showed me plenty of pictures. His daughter, who wanted to go to veterinary school. His wife, who worked at the DMV. His twin boys, who were out camping. They just love wildlife, he chuckled. Ever heard of two 12-year-olds who are more interested in bird watching than video games? After telling him about my life and my work, I tried to slip out that old after-party into the conversation, the same one we'd been to all those years ago. He knew exactly what I talked about. Man, you had it in for her, he grinned. Ain't no secret. You know what happened to her? Why, you looking to make up for lost time? Come on, man. All right, all right, he smiled. I'll tell you what I know. Her name was Josie Fadden. She had been the friend of a friend, and half the guys at the party had fallen madly in love with her, Micah included. She got a lot of friend requests that night, he laughed. Don't think she accepted any. You know what happened to her? Not sure, he shrugged. I think she moved to Morgantown to get her master's. She's still there? Micah leaned back and grinned as he finished his bear claw. You are making up for lost time, aren't you? To an outsider, what I did next might sound insane, but I had a few days off work, and I had to stay at a hotel either way. I figured I might as well do it in Morgantown. I drove up there over the afternoon. It was exhilarating. The only thing that could overpower my fear of the white door was the promise of seeing Josie again. It was hard to admit, but out of all the people who'd fallen in love with her that night, I'd probably fallen the hardest. More than a decade later, I could still smell her coconut shampoo. Still, it was hard to take my mind off my burning neck rash. Covering it with an itchy scarf didn't exactly help. I stopped at a gas station to look her up. I couldn't find her on any social media. 
I tried both Josie and Fadden together and separately, but I got nothing. No relatives, no friends, nothing. For all intents and purposes, she was invisible. You don't see that often nowadays. I bought a burrito and ate it in the car. I pondered my options. You can't just walk around Morgantown and hope you bump into the right person. That might work back in Juniper, but there had to be a better way. Sitting there, I nodded off. The world turned dark, and I heard a set of rusty hinges turn, something carefully moving through the underbrush, a pale hand reaching for me, unblinking eyes coming out of the dark. It was just a few minutes, but it was enough to send me reeling out of the car. I fell to the pavement, coughing violently. It was getting worse. There was blood this time. I counted down the seconds. My breath came back at 35 seconds this time. If that's how bad I'd gotten from a five-minute nap, a full night's sleep would be the end of me. I got a strange look from a couple of teens walking past. They slowed down to check on me, but decided it was none of their business. I couldn't blame them. I got back in the car. I had to be careful, or I'd end up as a side note in the local paper. Sad man, dead in a parking lot. That, however, gave me an idea. The paper. Now, literal newspapers have been in decline for years, but Josie went to a very specific master's program at WVU. Some of those student-run sites have been hosted on the same servers since the 90s. Just having a quick glance at one of them, I found a news article and interviews from 2014. I just had to dig further back and look for anything related to her master's, and I might get some kind of insight. I sat there scrolling for the better part of an hour. I'm not much of a phone guy, and the thing was running hot in my sweaty palms. 2013, 2012, 2011, and there she was, Josie Fadden. An article weeks before her graduation in 2011. I could have recognized her a mile away. She had the same dimpled smile. She talked about her master's thesis in an invasive plant species and the dangers of unchecked greenhouse gardens. My favorite is Helianthus cerulea. The article quoted, The blue sunflowers remind me of home. The article noted her working with a local florist to conduct further testing. I took note of the address and name of the owner. But no matter how pretty it is, it must be contained, the article concluded, locked away. This lit a fire in me. I had a lead. I made a couple of calls and got a few names. The names of the florist led me to the name of the current owner, then in turn referred me to an ex-employee who worked with Josie. They in turn referred me to one of her old classmates. I didn't get a number, but I got an address to a greenhouse just outside of town where they worked. It was better than nothing. About an hour later, I made my way to the greenhouse. It was this large, cylinder-shaped plastic building stretching across the parking lot. The thing was bigger than anticipated. Then again, I'd never been to one before. They were about to close when I walked in, but I couldn't see anyone matching the description I'd gotten. His name was Mark Burton. About my age, thick glasses, thin as a twig. Had a bit of a New England accent. I stopped to ask one of the gardeners, an older woman with a kind smile. Mark, she frowned. Oh, I'm sorry to have to tell you this. Another dead end. This time, literally. Mark Burton had died a few years ago. Apparently, he had asphyxiated from an allergic reaction. The old woman sat me down to tell me all about Mark. She had a lot of fond memories of him, and his sudden death had affected her a lot. Apparently, one of her co-workers had found him. Right down there, she pointed, across to the greenhouse, back where we used to keep Heliantha cerulea. Blue sunflowers. Ghastly things, aren't they? Lovely smell, though, reminds me of coconut. I made my way back to my car and got back on my phone, 
clouds had started to gather overhead, drowning the air with the smell of fresh rain. I found some of Mark's old socials, which were still open as a sort of online tombstone, people posting pictures of him and expressing the regret. It was strange to think about. He wouldn't have been my age if had he still lived, and I might go the same way if I couldn't find the answers I needed. And there, a picture, Mark, his sister, and Josie Fadden, tagged as Josephine Earl. A new name. That was it. That was her. An hour later, I was parked outside a small black brick townhome, the last known address for Josephine Earl. The sky had gone dark with clouds, and the first spatters of rain were tapping on the window. It was hypnotic, lulling me back to sleep. The realization of which shook a shock through me, jolting me awake. I hurried up to the front door, my pulse planting a headache in the back of my cranium. I was too tired to yawn. My hands shook as I rang the doorbell. What was I even expecting? At that point, I didn't know. It took 20 heartbeats for her shadow to move up to the door. The handle turned and light poured out. The smell of coconut. And there she was. It felt so strange seeing her again. I couldn't believe it. She was different, but it was still her. It was Josie, and in another way, it wasn't. Then again, I was barely recognizable as well. Can I help you? She asked. Josie Fountain? She just looked at me. It took her a few seconds to even register the name and the implication. Finally, she shook her head. She's not here. It's you, right? She sighed and looked away. After a deep breath, she met my eyes. What do you want? It's complicated. I thought you might be able to help me. With what? The, uh, the sunflower room. Josie, or Josephine, stepped back. She unlocked the door and opened it wide. It was so strange to see her like this. I'd never seen her frown. Then again, I'd only known her the one night so many years ago. Let's talk. She invited me in and offered me a cup of tea. We sat down in her living room, and she refused to look me in the eye. She was visibly nervous, shaking about as bad as I did. Do you remember me? I asked. Sorry, no, she said, shaking her head, but we must have met. Yeah, I nodded, a few years back. So I told you about the sunflower room, she sighed. The white door and the field where I, where you plant your worries, and they turn blue. Those plants are native to my hometown, you know. Ever been Tom Skog, Minnesota? Never heard of it. If you have, I sipped my tea, fruity. I wanted to know what's happening to me. I keep thinking about that place. And it hurts you, doesn't it? I think I can see a rash there. It does. Josie finished her tea and put the cup down on the glass coffee table. So why now, I asked. Why me? It needs new plants, she shrugged. If nothing new is planted, the room sort of cannibalizes itself. Hell, it strains itself so much more that some seeds make all their way over to our side. Is that why it's hurting me? Because I haven't planted anything? Probably. Then why aren't you affected? Josie got out of her chair and stretched. She turned to me with a smile, but it wasn't the smile I remembered her by. You have to plant something regularly. At first, it's things you want to get rid of. You plant your worries, your hate, your fear. But after a while, you just have to keep planting. You plant your dreams, your hope, your loves, even your memories. You just have to keep planting. Because if you don't, the room will pull you back in. And if you don't plant anything, then you... She shrugged. What happens to you, happens. So that's, the all, that's all there is to it? I have to plant things in there? 
You have to lose parts of yourself, she clarified. Today, it is worries. Tomorrow, the rest. She took the empty teacup from my hand and placed it on the coffee table. But you don't have to plant your own things, she smiled, as long as you keep planting something. I could see it now. There was a real difference to her. She had lost so much, everything down to the dimples of her smile and the music in her voice. She was the gray remains of what I'd, what I'd known used to be Josie. Maybe that's why she changed her name, to reflect the change she'd gone through over the years. You, you lost it, I said. You lost all of it. So much. What's even left at this point? Not much, she admitted. But what little I got, I'm gonna keep. I tried to get out of my chair, but my legs didn't move. I tasted coconut, and my eyes had started moving on their own. With you, I can plant, what, almost 40 years of hope, dreams, and thoughts? And at the same time, tie up a loose end? I wouldn't have to think about that place ever again. I'll lose nothing more. But you can't just... I couldn't feel my tongue. Darkness. I felt a faint touch, gentle hands closing around my throat. And in the dark of my mind, I saw that white door with the brass knocker. It opened itself to me. The thorn tendrils moved aside, welcoming me. The blue sunflowers towered above in a world full of green and blue. A full moon looking down like a looming eye in the sky. A pale woman was there, the one with the smile and the unblinking eyes. And she turned to me. Except this time, I recognized her. I dared to look closer. This was Josie. The sum of all her worries, dreams, hopes, and joys. Everything planted, put away, and stored. The little parts that made the whole manifested into this sick-looking creature. She barely had any hair left, and her physique had been stretched and twisted. Her skin had grown pale from years of darkness. She stared at me with wet, unblinking black eyes. And when she looked at me, she did so with recognition and smiled. What we had together was there, in her. Without a word, she grasped my hand with her hands. I could tell she wanted to help. She knew me, she recognized me, and she was regretful. Maybe she hadn't met me, meant for me to come here, to see this. Maybe she had just been a drunk girl sharing a secret. She leaned her head against my shoulder with a gentle purr, then looked me in the eye, and smashed my head against her as hard as she could. I wasn't dead. This wasn't over. Back in Josephine's townhouse, she was leaning over me, choking me. Suddenly, I jerked back awake, thrusting my head forward. I hit her square on the nose, sending her reeling backwards. Y y what the hell did you- She grabbed a cheese knife from an empty plate and got back up. I matched her movements to the best of my ability, but I was failing and falling in and out of consciousness. The next moment, I was back there, looking at the dark eyes of who she once- been the real Josie. The sunflowers were closing in. Thorns crept up my legs. Josie wasn't giving up on me, but there wasn't much she could do. Finally, she took a step back and rushed me, throwing me forward. Awake, I lunged at Josephine. She stumbled backwards, tripping on the edge of a carpet. She fell backwards, breaking her glass coffee table into a thousand pieces, cutting herself. This time, as I collapsed onto the floor, I knew I wouldn't be coming back. And there we were. The three of us, the sunflower room, being mauled by thorns and vivid blue petals, my skin punctured, my flesh stripped, and Josie apologetically trying to comfort me. Was this it? Was this all there was to it? Just pain forever? No, cried Josephine. 
I, I buried you. Josie smiled at me, and I understood. So, you don't get away, not even in death. Josie shook her head. You postpone it. That's all you can do, whether you plant anything or not. I continued, that's it, isn't it? The thorns didn't seem to bother her. She stroked my cheek gently as Josephine was torn to shreds. You said this. This place used to be beautiful, I reminisced. Could it be? Josie whispered a secret in my ear as Josephine's vocal cords were stretched and snapped. Countless beings, all twisted manifestations of memories and thoughts buried, stared at me from the dark, all with unblinking eyes. And as the blue sunflowers faded from my mind's eye and in the dark that remained, I asked a final question. Will I see you again? I woke up on Josephine's floor, coughing up sunflower seeds. A paramedic loomed over me, having driven an EpiPen into my leg. Apparently the neighbors had heard the commotion. I'd killed Josephine. She lay dead on the floor. I planted her in the sunflower room. I'd postponed my death. Blood tests found that there were drugs in my system. It was deemed an accidental death from self-defense. You might have seen it in the news, but it was just this local domestic abuse kind of story. A lot of context was lost, and there were bigger news circling the media that month. I'm sort of thankful for it. The real Josie had been buried piece by piece over the years. Josephine was all that remained, and she was desperate not to lose herself further. Now, before I tell you what happened next, I want you to think about this with me. Really think about it. Imagine the white door, an old white wooden door, a brass knocker that's been turning green over the years. The door is segmented into two squares, stacked on top of one another. Try to imagine it. You've probably seen something like it before. As it opens, it gives way to a field of flowers, beautiful blue sunflowers in neat rows. There you can bury your worries, your hatred, your ugly thoughts, and the caretakers of that room will care for them forever. Imagine the fresh soil between your fingers and pushing something awful down into it. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? Now here's the thing, I'm sorry. By telling you about the sunflower room, you became aware. It's a mark that you can't get rid of. It is this fixed idea that will settle and grow. It can change things, plant things, take things. We can all mitigate it by just planting one thing every now and then. If we all pitch in collectively, I think the effect will be milder. Maybe this place is something we've always had, a heaven or hell, depending on how you see it. Maybe it was there all along in the back of our collective minds. I believe it can be beautiful. Josie told me so. Well, I know I said my stories don't have happy endings, and this is definitely open to interpretation, I think. Our last story is called my dad died a week ago, but today I received a letter from him by Eom Cabin. You can check out more of their work on their subreddit in the show notes. I really like this story, and it carries a similar theme as our last story in a way, so let's get started with our last tale of the night. The earliest and clearest memory I have of my dad is his gentle hands placing a birthday cake he'd made right in front of my nine-year-old self 
and a warm smile blooming on his haggard face when I blew the six rainbow candles on it. It was just me and him. Dad told me that I once had a mother and a sister, but they both decided to leave one day. I didn't mind. I never cared. As far as I was concerned, my dad was a superhero who could do anything without ever complaining. But alas, cancer was the one thing he never managed to beat. He died a week ago, the day right after I'd proposed to Michael. I'd visited him in the hospital, and we had a blast just celebrating together and imagining what the future could hold for us. I don't know how, but I guess we both knew deep down that night was it. By it, I mean the final moment where we bo- where both of us could truly and blissfully be happy together. And that was left for things to go downhill. And downhill they went. He flatlined the next day. One of the best days of my life was followed by inarguably the worst. I admit that I did become a shell of my former self, however functional I may have seemed to the outsiders. I just wasn't all there, if you get what I mean. I still cooked, I still worked, I still fucked, and I still slept, but I felt detached from it all. Like a sponge that, although submerged in the deepest part of the ocean, didn't dare absorb a single drop of water despite the massive force of the sea upon it. Michael was starting to get worried, because even though my shell was perfect, he could tell that something was wrong with my insides. A week went by like this. A week where all I thought was my father, my hero, had passed away, via while I typed, stirred, or moaned. I realized just what an integral part of me he had been, someone who always had been by my side to help me if trouble, any trouble, ever hit. I felt vulnerable, the umbrella that protected me for even the mightiest of ever heard rainstorms, now gone and buried. And all I could think about was when the next cloudburst of unforgiving rain would occur. The colors around me were so dull they might as well have been monochrome. The one week after his death was, without a doubt, one of the lowest point in my life, if not the lowest. But then I got a letter. A letter that changed everything. A letter that awoke my shell-shocked self, believe it or not, and allowed me to come out of my constricted prison. In front of our mailbox, my hands found themselves holding a letter which saturated my surroundings with all of the emotions I had been unconsciously holding in like the carrier of some disease, infecting everyone and everything in my immediate vicinity. It was a letter from my father. The handwriting under the stamp was unmistakable. With fingers that trembled as though they found themselves in the middle of a barren arctic wasteland, I managed to open the thing without outright shedding it to shredding it to pieces and reading what my father had written. Dear Spencer, if you're reading this, well, that means I'm dead. I didn't make it through. I'm sorry for leaving you alone just when you were ready to become an adult. It's poetic in a sense, but I still wish I could have been around to see the man you would have become for the sake of those closest to you. For that, I am truly sorry, and I will gladly tell God, or the devil, that leaving you behind is my greatest regret. I can't imagine what it's been like, so I prepared a little something for you. A treasure hunt. Just like the ones I would always prepare for your birthdays until you quote-unquote got too old for them, as you told me when you were 13. I hope you'll be able to find the closure in these. Love, Dad. Below this loving note was an address. Well, not so much an address as, per se, a location scribbled in thick and bold ink. Chuck E. Cheese, men's stall, third stall tank. You might be wondering why this is relevant, me visiting a Chuck E. Cheese. 
Well, as it happened, my dad had booked a fancy restaurant for the two of us when I graduated Summacum Laud from my law school. But the reservation fell through, and all we had available was the local Chuck E. Cheese, believe it or not. We really did have fun there, and it stands tall in my mind as one of the, my most fondest memories. Anyhow, the only employee in that particular Chuck E. Cheese, on the particular time, on that particular day, when I went, was a teenage girl. She only spared me a lazy gaze before refocusing her attention back to the factorial she was busy solving in her notebook. Michael was still at work, and I knew I was going to be behind his back without telling him what I was up to. But I couldn't care less about that. I entered the restroom and went over to the third stall, trying to pay the foul odor no mind. I raised the lid of that tank using the sleeve of my long jacket, and I found a plastic bag bobbing about in there. Inside the bag, I found another note along with a handful of Chuck E. Cheese winner tickets. The second note reads as follows. Dear Spencer, I hope this isn't weird. Christ, what am I even saying? You're probably reading this in the stall of a children's restaurant for God's sake. Well, I'm sorry you had to come here, not least because of the horrendous number of germs that covered this place. But please think of this as a nice trip down memory lane. You remember, don't you? I'd book a table at that expensive French restaurant just for the two of us, dipping into my pension fund just for the special occasion. I'm not telling you this to make you feel guilty. On the contrary, I didn't mind paying even twice as much if it meant we could reflect together over a nice glass of champagne and some good old-fashioned snails of the wondrous life we had had that guided us to this one moment. But some rich bastard outpaid my reservation, and it was more than gone. It was lost. I remember feeling disappointed, even more so when you told me it was no big deal. I felt ashamed, and I remember feeling an empty sadness inside of me as we drove down the highway that night. But then your eyes spotted the very Chuck E. Cheese you found this note in, the very same one I would take you to when you were too young to be affected by the germs of others. I scoffed at your proposal to dine there, but I relented for your sake. Believe me when I say that I will forever hold that night where it was just the two of us in our best tuxedos and playing silly games as one of the few memories that orbits around my old heart. I would have rather have had snails, but mishap-shaped pizzas were as good, if not better. By all means, it was a stupid idea, but it made for a stupendous night that I will never forget. Thank you, Spencer, for giving me the best night of my life. You are truly my son, and I love you very much. I was startled out of my intense trance by the young girl I'd come across earlier walking into the bathroom. I can't imagine how awkward of a situation that must have been for her, walking into the men's stall and finding a grown man crying while holding a note. She, understandably, asked if I was alright, and I said I was. I walked out of that filthy place and tipped her my lucky $2 bill and apologized for the inconvenience I had caused. I wonder why I did that, but it felt like the right thing to do at that moment. I still feel Chuck's dead animatronic eyes on my back, burrowing through my now-tired lungs just as deep as the day I left. But I digress. At the end of the second letter, there was another address scribbled in thick, black ink just like the last one. Park, second volleyball court, under the third board. For context, the local park in my city had these shitty volleyball courts, with bases that have the worst wooden flooring imaginable. Out of the floor volleyball courts, we almost never played on the second because there was this one board that always moved. Let's just say that your chances of falling on your ass, or as we're about to return a serve increased exponentially, 
if you happen to be playing on a particular side of that particular court. Anyhow, it was just after lunch when I arrived. The only people to be seen were senior citizens and a few jockers. It was the middle of work hours on a weekend, after all. I stepped on the creaky court and dug my nervous fingers under that particular board. Then I found exactly what I thought I would find, yet another plastic zip bag with more things inside. I sat on one of the nearby benches, the only one under the shade of a tree, and read the newest note. Dear Spencer, you may or may not be wondering why you found yourself here, but I'll get to a point, so please hold your horses. I still remember the day to introduce me to Michael, well, the day you told me he existed, so to speak, over text no less. I'll admit that it wasn't the easiest thing to process, especially since you'd kept your sexuality from me for so long. Our silence over these two immediate days was not a direct result of any contempt or disgust or anything like that. It was a result of me reflecting long and hard on myself. I look back on every moment I'd spent with you and wonder just how I'd missed something like this. On a lighter note, your disaster date with Sarah Aberdeen did finally make a lot more sense. But if I'm being honest, most of that time was spent thinking about my own upbringings as an Orthodox Christian. When you, my son, finally broke my silence with an invite to meet Michael, and you at the very park where you found this letter. I would be lying if I wrote that I jumped at the chance. I felt nervous, as you can expect, and I hope I didn't give too strong of a bad impression. Michael was really nice, but I'm sure both of you noticed my equally shifty and stiff behavior. I saw how embarrassed you look, and I admit I didn't calm my nerves any less. I also started to feel embarrassed, and imagine all of our good times spent together unraveling just because of this. But then we just happened to be passing by those volleyball courts. At that moment, I got the strongest impression that you were about to take Michael away and go somewhere else, and that's why I blurted out so suddenly that we should play a game or two. It's also why I bought that expensive as hell volleyball at the stand nearby. I don't know why, but the mood did seem to lighten as we played and took turns falling on our asses from the board that we could just never avoid. I also admit that after I stopped laughing, I'd forgotten about my earlier misgivings. The hot dogs we all ate afterwards might have tasted like crap, but the honest conversation we had while doing so certainly wasn't anything like them. It might have been cheesy for me to say that I accepted you for who you were and told Michael to take good care of you. But by all means, it didn't feel right to just end things there without me addressing the elephant I had brought along. I realized it must have taken a lot of guts to come clean to me then, especially since you had known for so long. I can't imagine what kind of thoughts you've had beforehand, or how many nights you spent without sleeping wandering about me. For that, my son, I am truly sorry. I wish you and Michael the best wedding possible, and I would like to apologize. I would like to apologize because death won't allow me to ever say any of what I've said in this note while standing beside you and him to all the guests and telling them, all of them, that I am proud to be your father. I love you, son, and that's why I accept you. All the best, Dad. My eyes were almost too watery to notice the next address. All I could do was take the volleyball I had found along with the note inside of the plastic bag with me as I headed back to my car. High school. Football field. Owl hole. My high school graduation. Of course. If you're wondering just what the hell my dad meant by owl hole, you should know that my high school has a very strange football field. Back in the 70s, they tried to finance a new football field, but there was one problem. There was a huge oak tree right in the middle of the planned site. 
The dean at the time wouldn't budge and wanted them to cut down the tree, and a tree with a stump that had a circumference of well over five meters, mind you. The local student population, and I do mean everyone, not just those who were considered hippies, gathered in protest after catching wind of this. The whole town was thrown into an uproar, and everyone started to protest, as apparently the tree had been planted by the first Puritans who had migrated to the area and was well over 400 years of age. The tree itself was declared a heritage, one, and with that, the project was canceled. Me and my dad always visited that tree, while where so many people would have all sorts of picnics, and which also happened to be the place of all my high school graduations. On the fifth branch of this tree, ten meters off the ground, there was a hole in it. An owl's nest, I'm sure you've guessed by now. One that me and my dad always checked for any owls whenever we sat there together. But much to my disappointment, we never found any. The sun was very low, starting to set. It was, wasn't actually, but I got that feeling. The feeling you get when you know just beyond a shadow of a doubt that something is about to happen, but can't stop it. Being dressed in casual attire making, made climbing the damn thing much easier, and I soon found myself sitting on the very bark that my ass had slowly eroded over the years. The view that greeted me was one that smashed a wave of nostalgia right in my face. Besides me was the owl hole where yet another plastic zip bag sat patiently. Inside the bag, I found another note, but what caught the attention of me, of my now red eyes, was the orange plastic pill bottle that my right hand had also pulled out of it. From what I could tell, it was full and looked as though it had never been used before. The note from this tree said the following. Dear Spencer, Forgive me for the shitty handwriting that I know this letter will be covered in, but my hand isn't what it used to be. I lied when I visited you after work with Michael. I couldn't feel a damn thing. I didn't tell you to grip my good hand and said because I feared how you would feel knowing that I was degenerating faster than you thought. Although it pained my heart knowing that I couldn't feel your warm hand for what I am sure was the last time. I'm glad you had a smile on your face. You might be wondering just why you found yourself on top of a tree that's taller than most buildings, and I know you're reading this whole thing while sitting on said tree because you're my son. Well, this place where you also had your high school graduation signifies the life you have led. Did you know that back in ancient Rome, you would have been considered a man if you made it to 15? That's how hard it was to make it to adulthood. And ever since I learned that in my college major, it has haunted me ever since. Let's just say that when only the two of us were left, this feeling intensified who knows how many a fold. Every little sneeze or cough would strike my soul like a whip. My one constant worry was that something would happen and you would never be able to enjoy the joys of life to an end as I have. But at the same time, I didn't want to make the life you were already living something tedious, so I did my best to stay out of your way. And I hope I did a good job. Only you can be a judge of that after all. Seeing you grow up in a healthy young man is what I consider to be the happiest time of my life. I felt confident. Your high school graduation was right around the corner, and I was sure you had made it. You would start the path to adulthood on that day, and I would send you off like a father walking his daughter down the aisle. This made me drop my guard. It's because of that this, and we went to spend the weekend at your uncle's cabin. But then you fell ill, and you found yourself, from my perspective, at death's door. Not since or before that day have I ever felt terror that bad grip my withered heart with leathery and coarse hands than I can still remember clearly, even now, as I write this almost ten years later. You were delirious, and I was too. 
The worst possible illness had struck at the worst possible time and place. We were at least 20 miles from the nearest pharmacy, and we'd been dropped off by your uncle, so we had no car. I got that feeling, Spencer. The feeling you get when you know, beyond rational thought, that something is about to happen and you can't stop it. I know that without some sort of medicine, you wouldn't have made it, and I couldn't stand that thought. I was about to lose you, and I didn't want to accept it. Illegible paragraph. And so with the bicycle I found in the shed, I pedaled away to the nearest CVS and got the antibiotics you so clearly needed. Nearly 40 miles I pedaled, and I didn't realize that my legs were on fire until after I'd given you one of the capsules. When I confirmed that your fever had indeed gone down, even though it felt like my own body was being incinerated, as long as you were alright, I could burn in hell for all I could have cared. The day of your graduation, there were so many parents that I could have... that... I could have seen. So I climbed and sat down on the very tree to find yourself sitting at that very moment. I watched you to receive your diploma, and if I had to, I would have gladly pedaled a hundred miles, if not more, on that day, if it was what we needed for you to stand proud on that podium. I love you, son. That's why I would give everything for you. Love, Dad. The sun in the distance was nearing close to the far-off horizon like the lips of a mother descending upon the forehead of her baby. I didn't climb down immediately. I just stared at the distant sun, and I tried to think back to the night my father detailed in the note. Try as I might, I came up with memories that were neither coherent nor concrete. I remembered lying down. I remember it being dark. I remember my dad coming home, wet as can be. And then I remember waking up and going down to the kitchen. My dad was the smile on his face, and a plate of still steaming pancakes in his hand. As far as I can tell, a cup of maple syrup was all it took to get past everything. But the sun, now at the same level as my eyes, had nearly reached the horizon, and I knew that I had to go to the next destination he wanted me to go to, because I was sure it was the last, and that I would never go there if I didn't today. But it wasn't a destination, at least one I had never been to personally. The shovel awaits you. Below that cryptic phrase were latitude and longitudinal coordinates. Ones I have not included here for a reason that will soon become very apparent. I input them on my phone and went on my way, driving down a road that got lonelier and lonelier the more I neared my destination. The horizon was slowly drinking the massive sun like an air bubble, and I feared I would suffocate if night were to befall me. So while the orange sky hung over me like a heavy blanket, I quickly made my way to the location the coordinates marked. A clearing deep in the local forest, in the middle of which a shovel protruded out of the ground like a grave. Much I will never say, purely for the reason that my mind had gone blank at that moment. All I have been able to hold onto has been the feeling of the rigid wood of the shovel chafing against my soft and trembling skin as I dug right where I once stood, frantic to reach something, whatever, before no light danced through the air. The shovel wound up struck and I heard a loud noise after I kicked it, which alerted to me that I struck my final treasure. A small jewelry box, which which I managed to pull out a large gash from the shovel staining its otherwise perfect exterior. All I found inside was the final note which my father had left me. Dear Spencer, I'm afraid I must tell you that this is the last letter you will find. If you've wondered how I was able to arrange for the scavenger hunt, I set things up the very day I got my diagnosis, a day before I told you and Michael and the only people who have remained close by my side. Assuming that you found all my letters and gifts, as you could imagine them as, 
I hope that you were able to look back and hopefully think that I was a good father to you. I certainly hope so. The truth is, Spencer, you've given me far more than I could ever hope to give back to you. I feel inadequate as I write this, knowing full well that you lay awake in your house at this very moment thinking about me as I set this final treasure in place. Illegible sentence. Maybe it's because now as I'm writing this, I'm reminiscing back to when you were but a young boy, innocent and carefree and always warmed my heart without meaning to. But I digress. Not because I've chosen to, mind you. That is something I no longer have control over. The details of how me and your mother met are ones I will spare you from as they hold no significant value to the continuity of this story. All you need to know is that the one thing led to another, and then another, and then another, which led us to camping on the very spot where this letter was buried. And as you may very well be aware of, we consummated our eloped marriage. As I said in the previous letter, one which you may or may not be aware of was of a deeply orthodox background, and my parents dared not approve of your mother, and he parents of me and they too were of conservative religious backgrounds. That's why you've never met any extended family apart from my brother, your uncle, who was the only one who still loved me afterwards and served as the best man at our impromptu wedding. Your older sister, apart from jet black hair, darker than any we had, had eyes that pulled down instead of up. I know that last part doesn't make sense, but it's the best I can describe it. Then of course you came along. We were all one happy family, but then you might be wondering, how come your mother, my wife, and your sister, my firstborn daughter, are not in our lives anymore? Well, son, no one ever dared to hesitate filling my ears with words contemplating how much you looked like me, but no one ever told me how much your sister looked like me or your mother. I never paid any mind to it, and now I wonder if I was truly ignorant or just being protected. All I know is that Things ended when I opened a letter from someone writing to my wife, my beautiful wife, that they were sorry and were willing to take responsibility for the little girl he had so callously abandoned out of youthful stupidity and naivety. I don't think I need to elaborate about what happens afterwards. I like to think that I become a part of a puppet for my emotions, but doing so is something I only resort to as an explanation to myself when I wish to exonerate myself from the guilt of my innocent, immediate actions. I made sure you would only find this after I died. You have to know, Spencer. This is my final gift to you. The whereabouts of your mother and your sister. You need no address or number to find them. Only the shovel and the hole you started with. I love my son. I love you because you are my true flesh and blood, because my crimson ether courses through your veins, and my eyes show you the world, and my hair flops down from your scalp. I love you, Spencer, because you are my flesh and blood. Always remember that. Love, Dad. Darkness had already fallen. By the time the stellar light from above had been extinguished, I only managed to excavate only enough ground for two small empty sockets to stare back at me. Then I was in darkness, all light having left, as though those deep abysmal hollowed eyes had engulfed my crippling soul whole with one sharp glare. I will be calling in an anonymous tip and burn the letters which I have outlined above. Let this post be the only anchor of truth left after I hit enter. I hope it will make living a lie easier, knowing that I'm not crazy for remembering this and that. But then again, what right do I have to hope? My mother and sister never certainly had the chance to, so why should I? I think I'll let everyone here decide. I'm too tired to do so myself. 
I wonder if my dad was too. Thank you for listening to the sixth episode of Once Upon a Terror. I have had an upshoot in listens and follows on Spotify. So thank you to everybody who came and listened to my podcast. I know it's all thanks to Shelby Scott and Scare You to Sleep. My story, Hotel Marin, can be heard on her podcast, uh, Scare You to Sleep. I will link it in the show notes. Everybody else's works is linked in the show notes. If you haven't followed the podcast, please do. If you haven't followed the Instagram, please do. It is Once Upon a Terror, as well as my email, onceuponaterror at outlook.com. If you would like to send in any stories or work. This was a more sad episode. I will save that. That's for sure. But I think sometimes horror can be sad. It's gotta, if it's gonna get gory, it's gonna get sad sometimes too. So this is more of the bluer side of the podcast, I guess, because I had a I had a rough week and just got off of school for break, for spring break. I'm in college, so it can be a stressful time for everybody. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I apologize for any of the difference in volume of audio. I uh, recorded half of this episode in my basement apartment, and I recorded the second half of this in my dad's office because I was traveling while recording the episode. So I know this is a bit late, but thank you for for all the support, and I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you, well, I will hear you next Friday. Good night, darklings. Good evening, darklings, and welcome to Once Upon a Terror. I'm your host, Adelina Hill, and I have three chilling tales for you tonight. They are, they don't really match into any certain rhyme or reason or theme, and please excuse my raspy voice, I'm recovering from tonsillitis. Again, I tend to be recovering from that a lot. Not very good for a podcast host, not good at all. But I digress, and we're just gonna, we're just gonna roll with it. Alright, so let's start the show. Once upon a time. <laughs> 